you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 10 today. We're going to look at a story, one of the stories uh, that Jesus told that you've probably looked at before in your life, because this is a favorite of every kid's Sunday school class and Bible school. We're going to talk about today the Good Samaritan. The, the problem with looking at these stories, and next week we're going to look at the prodigal son, these are so well known, that you have a tendency to go, well, I already know that story, I already know what that's about. And so I'm going to challenge you today as we start to just really sort of think about it in a different way. And I'm going to do my very best to maybe present, some, uh, present the, uh, the, the ideas or the facts of the story maybe in a way you've never heard of them before, and, and that's my goal today. Let me begin with a story, though. One guy writes, years ago, my wife and I had taken our two little girls, age three, ages three and one and a half, on a cross-country flight from Chicago to California. I don't know how many of you have ever done a flight like that with small children, but it was not pretty. We had taken over the whole back row of the plane, basically because nobody wanted to sit near us. It was littered with dirty diapers and crayons and crumbs and cookies. It didn't look good. It didn't smell good. You know you're in trouble when the flight attendant comes and asks if you wouldn't mind your children playing outside for a while. (laughs) We were wondering why in the world did we bring these kids with us on this trip? And then a guy in a row in front of us turned back and, and kind of surveyed the damage and he looked at me and he said, are those your two little children? And I thought about it and I said, yes, yes they are. And he said, my wife and I would give anything in the world to have two children. You know where this is going, right? And so I said, oh, you and your wife don't have any children? He said, no, we have five kids and we would do anything to only have two. (laughs) Jesus tells stories called parables. And just when you think you know what he's going to do next, he pulls the rug out from under you. And that happens in the story of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to talk about it today. So it's found in Luke chapter 10. Um, This is a great story. If you've never heard it before, we're going to hear it for the first time perhaps, but it's unlikely that you've never heard it before. Jesus has this conversation with a lawyer, and so we'll just jump in. On one occasion, an expert in the law, now understand what the law is. The law is the first five books of the Bible, Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's where the Ten Commandments are found. That's where the law is found. It's sometimes called the Pentateuch. Because penta means five, so it's the five books. And so an expert in the law in Jesus' day knew the law forward and backward. He, he knew. Uh, it's likely that a, a teacher of the law would, would know it all, would have it all memorized, would really know everything. Now, he stands, it says, to test Jesus, and, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, in Jesus' day, the posture of the the presenter, like today it's actually backwards than the way it was back then. Uh, the presenter would be seated, and you would be seated too as the audience. But if you had a question to ask the teacher, you would stand. And, and by standing, you would be saying, I'm interested in what you have to say. But that's not exactly the case here, because it says this teacher of the law, this lawyer, stood in order to test Jesus. We do it all the time. We don't do it this way, but we do it. We test the, the, the uh, veracity of somebody. So you're watching the news, and there's an expert, and there's experts in everything. And so there's an expert in the pandemic. There is an expert in foreign policy. And you make a, 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 a judgment 
if you trust them or not based on their credentials or what they say. And so this is a guy, and he's probably heard about Jesus. And here he is, he's going to make an assessment of Jesus. And as a lawyer, the best way to make an assessment, he thinks, is I'm going to ask a question. And he's going to test Jesus in this question. And so he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's really a good question, by the way. It's a great question. Um, Jesus returns the question with a question. That's what great teachers do. Uh, what's written in the law? And this makes sense. He's asking a lawyer, hey, what does the law say? How do you interpret it? How do you read it? Now, there's this brilliant philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard. He passed away a few years ago. Brilliant. He, he was a uh, philosophy professor at uh, Southern Cal. Uh, great Christian man. And, and he makes the point that Jesus taught in parables in order to overcome the prevailing assumptions of the day. The prevailing assumption was found in the question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The presumption is I can do something. It's possible for me to do something in order to inherit eternal life. And, and so Jesus says, okay, well, you know the law. What do you think it says? What do you think? It's, a great, it's great to do. Uh, I'm a teacher right now as far as my daughter who's learning to drive. And when we're driving down the road, I'll say, Elise, look at this situation. Look how this is playing out. There's a, there's a bicyclist on our side of the road and a car is coming. What do we do? How do we run the bicyclist off the road? You know, it's like, how do we, I am really teasing. That's really not what you do. Uh, what do we do here? Because you're going to encounter this. What, what, what do you do? How far back do you slow down? You don't want to get up on them. You know, you don't want to scare them. What do we do here? And so you're always teaching. And so Jesus is teaching. What do you think? You've read the law, Mr. Lawyer Man. What do you think? The lawyer gives a great answer, by the way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer quotes the law. These are two quotes from the Old Testament. One is from Deuteronomy, one is from Leviticus. And, and it's a great answer. Love, love God, love people. Um, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Uh, do this and you'll live. And, and, and so, really, the sermon should be over at this point. It's like, let's pack up, go home, because the story's over. Good job. Jesus is like, good job, dude. That was a great answer. However, people who like rules want to know what the rule is. And that was pretty abstract. Love God, love people. It's like, okay, 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 okay. What does that mean exactly? And that's kind of the question he asks. He wanted to justify himself. He needs the rule. What's the rule? So he says, well, who is my neighbor? It's like, did you notice? It shifted. He was testing Jesus, and now he's kind of testing himself. Okay, well, if that's the, if that's the law, explain to me what the law means to me. I, I need to know what it means. People who like rules are always looking for a rule. You'll, you'll remember Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, had been listening to the law. He knew the law. The law said you forgive somebody three times. And so one time he, one time he says to Jesus, okay, how many times should I forgive? Now he knew it had to be more than three. And so he says, uh, up to seven times? 
which is pretty magnanimous if you think about it. He doubled it and added one. Uh, up to seven times? And that's where Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. It's like, it, it has to be endless. And so they, they, they're thinking about stuff wrong, but they want a list. And this guy wants a list. It's as if he's saying, um, he says, okay, I need to love people. He's like, yeah, Jesus, like, do that. And he goes, well, which people do I need to love? Because there's a sort of, there's this assumption that's going on. And he wants to double check if his assumption is, pro- is, is proper, if it's right. You ever go back and check yourself? Like the other day I left the house and I drove down the road a little bit. I couldn't remember if I'd closed the garage door. Anybody ever do that? And so you turn around, or you, maybe you just leave it up. Uh, I turned around, I wanted to make sure, so I drove back there. It was closed, and then I'm annoyed with myself. And so, um, have you ever, like, I would send an email occasionally, and I'll think, did I, did I say everything I wanted to say in there, and I'll have to reread it, and we do stuff like that. And, and so, uh, this was uh, kind of him double-checking the other day I packed, uh, packed a little bag. I was taking my mother back home to Kentucky, and I had it already packed in the car. And then I, w- I went and rechecked to see if I had packed my, uh, my phone charger because you don't really want to be without that. And so he knew what he thought the rule was, but he wanted to make sure with this rabbi what this rabbi has to say. Because in Jewish society, there's this sort of pecking order. There's this, there's this logical order. And so, the structure of Jesus' day, the priests were at the top. I like this structure, by the way. Uh, uh, Preachers at the top, always a good thing. And so, uh, the priests were at the top. They were kind of the most sophisticated. I mean, it's the same as today. Uh, uh, the, The guy that has the most education, he's smartest, you know. These are the guys that are the best respected, most respected guys. The priests, they work in the church, everybody respects them when they walk down. Now, they had a problem, they sort of thought a lot of themselves, uh, and, and so the crowd didn't always like them, but anyway, they thought highly of them. Levites were a little less, but they still worked in the church. So think about it like this, the priests are like preachers, the Levites aren't as good as preachers, they're like ministers of worship, okay, uh, not quite as good, you know, they're not quite as holy, but they're pretty good, they work in church. And then you had regular Jewish people. We're going to call them, you know, Joe Jew. I mean, uh, it's like, these are just regular folks. They, they own a bakery or they have a, 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 a merchandise uh, a business. They, you know, sell something. They, they sell tools or they're a farmer. They're just regular people. They're, they're common everyday folk. Joe Jew. And, and then there's the untouchables. There's a lot of people in the untouchable category. Uh, tax collectors, they really didn't like tax collectors. They didn't like lepers because they were physically, literally untouchable. Prostitutes, rebellious sinners, Samaritans, we're going to talk about that in a bit, and Gentiles. And their list of untouchables was pretty big. And so when the lawyer says, who is my neighbor, what he's really saying is, how low do I have to go? Because here's what his, his assumption is this. I'm really fairly certain the list includes the priests. I, I probably should be a good neighbor to the priests. And I probably should be a good neighbor to the Levites, because they're kind of the upper crust people. And, and he's going to be okay if Jesus says, and uh, the, the regular Jewish people, Joe Jew, I mean, he's going to be okay with that. And that is sort of the expectation when he says, who is my neighbor? He's basically saying, okay, how far down the list 
do I go? And Jesus tells a story. And he says this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to Jerusalem. But let me, let me explain that phrase, in reply. It's sort of like, it's a challenge. You ever been challenged and you take up the challenge? Well, Jesus is taking up the challenge. We have a precocious little girl that goes to church here. Her name is Stella. Stella is a very fast runner. And Stella often will challenge me to a race. She's very, uh, she's very kind of tricky about it. Uh, she'll say stuff like, what kind of shoes you have on today? Like I have running shoes on, you know, something like that. And she'll challenge me to a race. She's very precocious, and she does it about every week. Uh, you, you, have, uh, you have time for a race. And, and she, she lays down a challenge. Now, I don't take it up. I mean, you know, she's, uh, I'm ten times her age. And I, I don't take it up for obvious reasons. I mean, I don't want to crush her little spirit. Uh, so uh, I don't race her, you know, that kind of thing. But in this case, the guy, uh, he issues a challenge, basically, and Jesus takes up the challenge. And in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, and they left him half dead and everybody in the audience would have said, oh, we've heard of stuff like that. Because it was sort of a common thing for that to happen. There's one route from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17-mile walk, by the way, which is a pretty good walk for a day. But you're descending the whole way. It's about a 3,300 feet elevation change down from Jericho, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho was sort of known as a recreational place. All right, so let me put it in perspective, like for us. It would be, this story Jesus would say, they went down you know, to Myrtle Beach, or they went, they went to the coast, all right? So, uh, by the way, uh, 3,300 feet, that's a pretty good drop. I, I got to thinking, what do we know around here that would be like that? Table Rock, from, from the base of Table Rock to the top of Table Rock, is about 2,000 feet elevation climb. And so it was half that again, so it's a pretty good climb, but it's over 17 miles, so... Um, the thing about this road you need to know is it was very dangerous and narrow. Well, we, um, we sort of get in our mind, when you hear the word road, you think, you know, uh, Wade Hampton. Well, it's not Wade Hampton. It's, it's a narrow little road, and it might even be called a path for us. And so this is the kind of stuff we, we uh, Americanize these stories like it's what we know as a road. Well, it's not really what we know as a road. It's really, really dangerous, and it had a nice little nickname. It was called the Road of Blood, because so many bandits hung out on this road. It was a great place to jack somebody. And so there were, um, there were nooks and crannies and crevices, or as we sophisticated people say, crevasses, and uh, people would hide away in those, and they would lay and wait, and they would wait, uh, late, uh, wait to waylay somebody, and, and this happened all the time. It got a nickname, the road of blood, for a reason. And everybody, when Jesus starts the story, it's like, yeah, that could happen, because we heard, we've heard about that happening a lot. And then Jesus introduces a couple characters. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, and so too a Levite. And when he came to the place uh, and saw him, he too passed on the other side. Now, again, take your idea of what a road looks like and narrow it. Think about a path. Think about it like this. It's a path, and on one side is, you know, is a drop, and on the other side is a cliff, 
and you're really there's nowhere to go. You you can't really you can't climb the cliff and you don't want to go down the side. And so this is the kind of road we're talking about. And for the priests to to go around this guy on the other side of the road would basically mean he would shimmy around him, making sure he didn't touch him. Because the guy would probably take up most of the path. And, and so he shimmies around. He makes sure he gets out of the way. Now, this is typical, and everybody listening to the story would have understood this, because um, him going from Jerusalem to Jericho made sense. He'd just been working and he'd been working in, uh, in Jer- Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. He'd done his stint as a priest in the temple. And so he's ready for a little R&R. And so <laughs> when they hear, you know, that, hey, the priest didn't want to stop, you know, you'd think that a preacher after he'd been preaching and hanging out at church and all that would be really, really willing to hang out with people, <laughs> but not so much. I mean, dude needed his nap. He was ready for, for a little rest, and so he scooches by. And the Levite did the same thing, kind of the same reasons, actually. There are several reasons why they wouldn't want to do this. Um, I'll, let me tell you this. Jesus is pointing out two types of sin. There's the sin of commission, that's what the robbers did. And there's the sin of omission, that's what uh, the priest and the Levite didn't do. And they're both sins. Now, it's easy to see the sin of commission. You steal, you, you rob, you beat you know, somebody up. Uh, those are easy. But the sins of omission, when you feel an urging in your hearts, God wants you to do something and you ignore it. That, that's also a sin. And so I think probably many of us in the room have felt that. Hey, God wants me to help them, and I, I don't feel like it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. Now, there were reasons. There were lots of reasons for the, the, the Levite and the priest not to help. Let me give you a couple. One is, by, if they had touched this body, they, they don't know if this guy's dead or not. There he is. He's laying there. And, and if he goes, if they go and touch him, then they become ritualistically defiled. And as a priest, you can't go and do your job if you have defilement. Touching a dead body would defile you. And then it takes a lot to get cleansed, uh, ritually speaking. It's a process. It takes about a week. And so the priest would look at this situation and he would say, it's going to take me, there's quite a risk here. I'm going to be ceremonially defiled, which means I'm going to, it's going to take me a week to get re-cleansed. I'm going to have to find, purchase, and sacrifice a red heifer. That was the rule. That was the law. And then I'm going to have to humiliate myself, humble myself, and stand in line with all the other sinners at the eastern gate and wait for absolution. And so I just don't want the hassle. And it was quite a headache for them to go through all this. And so I'm sure he's making this analysis. There's another reason not to stop. See, bandits were really, really smart, and so sometimes they would put a decoy, a person that looked like they were hurt, out. And then when somebody would stop to help them, the bandits would come out, and their compatriot who was here uh, pretending to be uh, unwell would, would jump up, and they would all rob this person. It happened all the time. still happens, by the way. 
If you watch, uh, you know, I watch some of those shows about investigations and, and that kind of thing, and a lot of times it will be, um, usually it's a guy with a van. You know, it's kind of everybody, uh, all these uh, uh, perps have vans, evidently. And uh, it'd be a guy in a van, and he'll say to some uh, young lady, hey, uh, uh, c- could you help me? I can't find my phone, or uh, my car won't start. I need to jump. Can you come over and help me? And, and then they pull him into the back of the, it's always a, a van, it's always white, it's always a panel van. So, you know, uh, every time, every show is the same thing. And, and and this still happens. You see it like with, with abduction of children. Somebody will say to a child, hey, I've lost my puppy and can you come help me? And then they'll abduct them. So uh, running a, a con like that isn't, it isn't new. It happened in that day. And so uh, the Levite would have known that, the priest would have known that, and the audience would have known it. Well, there are reasons not to stop. Uh, I, I would become ritually defiled. It's not safe. And, and what if this dude, who I don't know who he is, what if he happens to be one of those people, th- those untouchable people? What if he's a Gentile? What if he's a Samaritan? Now, to be cleansed again, I'd have to do more. It's bad enough if it's a Jew that I'm helping. But if it turns out I touch a dead Gentile, oh my word, it just gets worse. And the Jews had a lot of people they didn't like. It's like being a Kentucky basketball fan. We don't like a lot of people. You know, we, a whole bunch of folks we don't like. And so they just didn't like a lot of people, and there's these social barriers. And then there's time. It's going to take him time. He's, gonna, he's got people waiting. They're, they're at the beach. They've already rented the condo down in Jericho. Can't, t- can't keep them waiting. And, and, and it's going to take time. Anything he does, anything they do, is going to take them some time. And then it's obviously going to cost them. There's going to be an expense because if the guy needs something, well, they're going to have to use some of their resources. And if he ends up being dead, they can't just leave him there. That's not even, that's not even cool. And so it's going to be, they're going to have to somehow get him or get somebody, pay somebody to come up and get him or whatever. And, Everybody in the audience listening to this story is like, yeah, there's a lot of reason not to stop. I mean, they'd all get it. We, we, they'd all feel it. Because when Jesus tells a story, we all kind of put ourselves in the story. Now, there's only one reason really to stop, and that is you have a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion says, I'm going to stop. There's a reason for me to stop. It's because I see somebody in need, and what? L- listen, Every risk that everybody else had, the Samaritan had. He, he too was risking. I mean, it was, it was the same thing. And here's what's interesting. Jesus tells this story and his audience is loving it. Because Jesus is kind of dissing the priests and the Levites because they think they're better than everybody else. And everybody kind of likes those stories. Jesus tells those stories. Jesus has told those stories. And so the audience is like, Woohoo, yes, yes, yes. We like his story. And they know who's next. The next person on the list is Joe Jew. Joe Jew is going to be the hero. They're all going to be the hero. They are loving this story. Because Jesus is going to stick it to the priest and the Levite. And we like it. We all like it. And the audience was kind of grinning. 
They weren't really, they're were making sure the uh, priest and Levites not looking, but they're grinning to each other. You know, they're kind of doing that. Elbowing each other. And then Jesus should have said, uh, you might want to sit down for this, Mr. Lawyer, because I'm about to blow your mind and you might not want to be standing for it. Because the next thing Jesus says is this, but a Samaritan, <laughs> and the oxygen would have left the room. Because y'all remember the, the pecking order, priest, Levite, Joju, untouchable. Jesus went to the bottom. <laughs> and he said, there was a Samaritan. And he becomes the hero. And I've been, I've been trying to think through, what is there in America today that would be comparable to this? And there really just isn't anything. Now, the only th I mean, the closest thing I could think of is if you're a conservative Republican you might have a, a, a real angst toward a, a liberal Democrat and vice versa. Those, those folks don't get along very well. I mean, uh, but, but it's not to this degree. Samaritans in the eyes of the Jews were... Let me tell you where they came from. And maybe, you'll, maybe that'll explain why they didn't like them. The Jews had their own country called Israel. Israel was often overrun by other countries. In 720 B.C., the Assyrians, a group, came in. And when you capture a country, what you want from that country is you'd like some uh, taxes, uh, some benefit of the agriculture. And to get that, you need the people to behave they're always, you know, rising up and all that stuff. It's just annoying and you're having to constantly put down rebellion, revolution. And so the Assyrians were maniacal in the way they would, they would capture a place and they would sort of uh, declaw it, if you will. They would do a couple of things. The, the most prominent, smartest... Uh, best educated, they would exile them. They would pull them out of the country and put them someplace else. Because they don't want, they know those were the leaders, and they don't want the leaders getting the people riled up. So they'd pull them out and take them someplace else. If they were uh, people that, you know, alpha males uh, had a lot of uh, uh, testosterone, they would just kill those guys. They'd kill them. So they would exile some, they would kill some. And then whoever was left, they would bring in some Assyrians and they would intermarry. They would, they would intermarry. And, and pardon my indelicacy, but they would become half-breeds. The kids were half-breeds. Half-Jew, half-not-Jew. And these are the Samaritans. They kept some Judaism. They, they still kind of knew God, but they did things the way the Assyrians did, who had lots of gods. And so they sort of, they, they melded everything together. Their, their faith, the way they did things. And so if you're a pure-blooded Jew who got exiled and, and you're way over there, you don't want to have anything to do with half-Jews because they don't do things the way you do it. And by the way, the animosity ran both directions. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. Now, there's a, 
a collection of writings called the Mishnah. You may not have ever heard of that, Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of Jewish uh, teachings. And, and in this, someone once wrote, um, anyone who eats with a Samaritan is like the one who eats flesh of the swine. Like eating pork, which was forbidden in the law. In Jesus' days, Jews would go, you have to understand how the country is situated. So, uh, you've heard of Galilee, I'm pretty sure that's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Galilee is in the north of Israel. Think of, think of an Oreo cookie, okay? North of Israel, that's Galilee. In the middle, the, the, the creamy filling, that's Samaria. And then the bottom, that's where Jerusalem is. That's the southern kingdom. And so you have the northern kingdom. Jesus did a lot of stuff in Galilee around there. Capernaum is up there. And he also did stuff down in Jerusalem. And so to get from the north to the south or the south to the north, the most direct route would be to go through Samaria. I, I have an illustration. All right, so this is a map. Uh, we live here. The promised land is here. And to go from here to here, the most direct route is through this state, this orange state, that really nobody wants to go to. <laughs> nobody wants to go there. And so, if we were Jews, uh, no, no talking over there. Uh, if we were Jews, we would, do, we would do this to get to the promised land. If we were in the promised land and wanted to come south, we do this. And that's what the Jews did. They really, really didn't like the Samaritans. Let me read a couple things to you. There's a guy named uh, Ben Sirach. He was um, one of the teachers of uh, education and religion uh, long ago, long, long ago. And he wrote this uh, before Jesus, by the way. Two nations my soul detests, and a third is not a nation at all. The people of Mount Seir, the Philistines, and the stupid people living in Samaria. And it gets worse. There's a historian by the name of Josephus. Isn't that a cool name? If my mom had just named me Josephus, that would be awesome. Josephus wrote the history of the Jewish people. And in his book, The History of the Jewish People, he writes that Jews daily prayed to God that the Samaritans might not partake in eternal life. Every day, a Jew would pray that the Samaritans would go to hell. And I don't know how to tell you or to relate that to you because I don't know that we do that in any way, shape, or form. I, I, I can't compare that to anything in today's time. And Jesus, this was the culture. Let, let me show you a story from Jesus. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers, so he's, he's in the north, he's going to the south, and he's going to cut through, he's going to do the shortcut through Samaria. Uh, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. They didn't like each other, it went both ways. Samaritans heard Jesus was going to Jerusalem. They kind of liked Jesus, they just didn't like he was going to the Jews. And so... He wasn't welcome. They wouldn't let him stay there. They wouldn't give him any food. 
So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? These are Jesus' disciples. Would you like a drone strike on these people? A scud missile? Lord, we'd like to watch. Can we sit on the hill and watch that, that, that village get destroyed? This is the animosity. So when Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero, nobody liked it. They were thinking they were going to be the hero. No, it's the Samaritan. And if the lawyer was saying, how low do I go? Jesus was saying, you push it down to the bottom. And it says in this story, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. I can't imagine what that sounded like. I don't know if it was like... (laughs) A harsh rebuke, or if he just rolled his eyes and said, boys, you all just don't get it. And they went on to the next village. In the book of Ezra, it talks about the pure-blooded Jews coming back to Jerusalem, and they wanted to establish the temple again, and they wanted to set up you know, their religion again. And the Samaritans fought them every step of the way because they already had their own thing going. They already had their own religion. It was sort of Jewish-ish-ish. It has some Judaism in it, but it wasn't purely Jewish. And they just despised each other. If we were to write it today, if Jesus were to say it today, I don't know who he would use. Maybe he would say there was um, a good Russian or a good member of Taliban. I don't, I don't know how it would go. I hope you understand there was such deep animosity and hatred for one another that when Jesus says Samaritan, nobody's happy. And then Jesus, it's almost like he wants to rub salt in the wound. He says, this is the hero and look how good he is. Look at the next couple of verses. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. And he put the man on his own donkey and brought him into the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him, he said, and I, when I return, I'll reimburse you. He basically gives him a blank check or his credit card. And let's quickly wrap up. Because a heart of compassion does a couple of things. Number one, it's willing to take the risk. He came to where the man was, and the the reasons not to help were the same. In fact, he had more reason not to help. Because if he were, as a Samaritan, to uh, look at this man who was a Jew, let's say he was a Jew, he didn't really know, but what if this man was a Jew, and he finds that he's dead, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him down to Jericho, and somebody in Jericho recognizes this Jewish man, and he says, hey, that Samaritan killed him. He was risking his life in more than just one way. It wasn't just the robbers he was worried about. And by the way, the robbers might see a priest and give him a pass, or a Levite and say, I'm not going to rob him, but he would certainly rob a Samaritan. This guy looked at the situation and was willing to help. A lot of risk involved in helping. And and then, mostly, he just took the time to see. When he saw him, his heart went out to him. And I have to wonder, as a Samaritan, you would have been rejected by the Jews all your life. Maybe he felt what it feels like to be rejected, to be laying there, not maybe literally, but figuratively. 
was talking to my friend Teresa a little while ago. She had just experienced this week a migraine headache. And if you've never had a migraine headache, you just think it's just a headache. No. It's horrible. It's debilitating. You, you, you can't do anything with a migraine headache. I've only had two. I thank Jesus I've only had two. But I do think I might have had one or two because now I know what it feels like. And maybe, maybe this guy knew what it felt like to be laying there, destitute, nobody to help. Let me, if you're making a cross-country trip, let's say you're going from the east coast to the west coast, there are a lot of ways to get there. You can go by plane, and you can see the country. It takes five or six hours by plane, I think. Uh, You can fly from, you know, the east coast, west coast, five hours, something like that. You can see the country. But if you want to really see the country, you go by train, it takes about 80 hours to go by train from the East Coast to the West Coast. That's nice. I don't know how often trains stop. I've never actually been on an Amtrak or anything, but I looked it up. It's about 77 hours from Charlotte, so I think 80 hours or so you can get from one coast to the next. You could also drive, and in a car, you can go faster than a train, but depending on who you have with you, uh, you might have to take, take stops and that kind of thing. And, and, so, and you can stop and you can look and you can really get to know the country. So if, if your objective is to know the country, f- flying is really not the best way. It's the fastest, it's just not the best. A tr- train is good, driving a car is really good, but if you really want to know the country, you walk. You walk. There's a guy that walked across the country, his name was Bill Bucklew. He did it in 67 days. I calculated uh, what my pace would be. It would take 67 months, so not quite the same. But here's the truth that we have to understand. The faster your life is, the less you see. And our margins are so tight that sometimes we don't program any opportunity to help anybody. You know, church... Starts at 10.30, we leave the house at 10.25. What happens if we see somebody that needs some help? Will we just blow by them? Because we don't have time. Hurry is the death of kindness. The third thing this guy did, he acted. Look at how Jesus is meticulous. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. By the way, it was, um, it, it was not allowed for a Jew to accept oil or wine from a Samaritan because the Samaritan hadn't tithed on it. And so literally in this story, if the man who was comatose uh, awakened from his slumber and the guy was pouring oil and wine on him, he was by law uh, commanded to... Uh, To tell the dude to stop, if he knew he was a Samaritan, stop Samaritan putting your oil and wine on me. He would have had to ask him to stop. He puts the man on his own donkey. So he submits, puts himself in a submission position. Riding the animal is the one in authority. He gets off of his animal. He puts the other guy on the animal. He elevates the other dude and he uh, humbles himself. And then he took care of him. And he takes him to the inn. And he lays out some money. Denarii. It's a day's wage. And he says, hey, if you need more, I've got more. And here's the thing about love. It is always inconvenient. And it is always costly. 
It just is. And Jesus in this story is saying, a heart of compassion. He, he doesn't really answer the question. He just says, basically the, the lawyer is saying, what does a person, uh, what does a person have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is saying, a person right with God does this. This is what being right with God looks like. And so, he asks the question, kind of rephrases the question. Which of these three, he asked the lawyer, uh, was a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? Just told you a story. You asked the question, who's my neighbor? Which was the neighbor? Look at the response. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What does he not say? Doesn't even use the word Samaritan. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Compassion is the heart of the God that we serve, and therefore it has to be the heart of the God that we serve. And it has to be the heart of us because we serve Him. Here's what has been on my mind the last week. I think it's obvious that our country is getting darker and darker spiritually. It just is. We accept things, we do things, we say things, we act certain ways that we would have never done 10 years ago. We're, we're getting dark fast. But Jesus said to us who follow him, you are the light of the world. And a light is brightest when the surroundings are darkest. We have opportunity to be people of compassion and when we are, our light shines brightest. Father, thank you for your word today. What a great story Jesus told. I pray that we might apply it to our lives and our hearts. Help us to be the brightest lights we can be in a dark, an ever-darkening world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.